Welcome to the Voices of Australia podcast, hosted by me, Anthea Hancox, and Lydia Tessima, where the concept and reality of social cohesion is deeply explored. This podcast is brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Each fortnight, we bring to you an interesting guest who present a new and often unexplained perspective of Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording the podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we pay our respect to all First Nations people. Hello, everyone, and it's delightful to have you here today. Um, I've, we have two wonderful guests uh, to share this uh, conversation with us. The first is Viv Nguyen. Viv is a passionate advocate for diversity and multiculturalism, but most people will, of course, know her as um, the, Victoria, the, commission, the chairperson of the Victorian Multicultural Commission. Uh, she is, though, also a business executive and a community leader. She's got more than 25 years' experience in the corporate, public and community sectors. And her previous role as president of the Vietnamese community in Australia, the Victorian chapter, Viv played a key role in advocating for Australia's first Vietnamese cultural museum, along with many other things. Um, and together with her, we have Hunnard Hersey. Hunnard is a youth advocate who works tirelessly to ensure that young people from diverse backgrounds have access to opportunities and are given the resources they need to prosper and lead fulfilled lives. Hunnard became interested in social services of his because of his love of travelling. For the past five years, Hunnard is, um, has been a grassroots community advocate, uh, particularly in the development of youth, the youth engagement space. Uh, he was a member of the Victoria Multicultural Commission's Regional Advisory Council um, and collaborated with various community organisations, but he is also the programs coordinator at Youth Activating Youth, uh, where he works with vulnerable young people who are at risk of disengaging from the education system and are at risk of coming into contact with the criminal justice system. So I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to have you both here. And we're uh, really pleased to be discussing with you both what strengthens social cohesion and what are the sorts of things that, uh, that social cohesion might mean to each of you. So I'd be really interested in your interpretations of this term. Um, how, how do you think of social cohesion either personally or within your roles? Viv? Thank you, Andy and Lydia, for having me join you at this uh, important conversation. And hello, Hanard. Um, for me, social cohesion means a number of things. But importantly, it is about participation in this democratic society. Particularly so for people from refugee backgrounds or migrants who come to Australia from a country that isn't democratic or a single regime or where democracy is relatively young. Uh, the ability and the opportunity to participate in uh, this system is really important because that then allows us knowledge, communication, connection, and then be able to understand different perspectives and respect the law and be able to live and work and play together. Um, and for me, participation in this society has always been something that really drives me from a very young age. From when I came to Australia as a refugee back in 1983, that was a long time ago, gee. Um, and I always found that, you know, knowing and wanting to find out why people are doing that, why I've got this but I can't get there, or, or how is it that 
that person doesn't look very capable to me, but he or she or they have got this gig and I couldn't <laughs> get this gig. You know, you, you ask those things and you understand a bit more about the challenges, the barriers, but also the opportunities. And that's what I think is really important, that everybody has the opportunity to particip participate. And to be able to participate, we need to know what the barriers and also the opportunities are. And if they are barriers, we can... We should try to, or we need to try and break them down. If there are opportunities, make sure that those opportunities are available to everyone. Viv, if you arrived as a 12-year-old, what what was your initial view of this new country that you'd come to? How did, how did you perceive it? It was certainly very strange because when I came in 83, I, we went to the Midway Hostel in Maribyrnong at the time and, you know, we got beef and and potato gravy and we had to use a fork and a knife and all of which were extremely unfamiliar to me. But we learned to adapt because we, from my perspective, I knew this is going to be my new home. And because uh, I was a refugee, the, at that time, the, 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 the thought of returning to Vietnam was just out of the question. Mm -hmm. So this is my new home. What do I need to do to be part of this society? You know, so you you learn about yourself. You learn about the environment. You learn about the issues and the challenges and the barriers and the wires and the house and 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 yeah, you you, you just really have to embrace because you didn't really have another option. And and did you find getting into the school system a challenge as well? Th that was there any connectivity between what you'd been learning before you arrived here and what the expectations were when you actually started school? There were two, two totally different worlds. You know, <laughs> I was going to say you would have had <laughs> to have learned English. Is that right? Oh, or yes, that's right. And yeah. then in Vietnam, I started year seven. We started school in Vietnam in, in around about July and I left in December. So every every morning we would you know stand there and we sing the national anthem and we do some physical exercise. Well, none of that was <laughs> here in, in Australia. And when I started high school here in, in, in Melbourne, in Brunswick, we went to Brunswick High School, which had a very strong Greek population. And we were whistled into a bunch of portables where we had to learn English and we would have four English subjects and the other three subjects that makes total seven for our for, for us and for the you know largely the large part of your everyday schooling is hanging around other people like us and so I found that challenging but not so unfamiliar because you know we'd be playing skipping rope and you know mm -hmm. we'd be doing these things with other kids so it wasn't too bad and the boys got to learn football and soccer and they should could share the playground and, and things of that nature but for me that the bit that was really critical for me was the the teachers my english as a second language teachers were just totally amazing like if it wasn't for them wow. i would have known about these things they taught us they feel uh, help us to fill out forms mm -hmm. they even sponsored my parents as the guarantor to for because I was the youngest out of the six kids um, they actually um, became my guarantor in order for us to apply for my parents to reunite with us oh wow yeah oh I was my. gonna say what yeah apart from those challenges you you kind of touched on what made you feel safe but what was that do you have a memory of the first thing that really made you feel safe in this country or m made you feel like you had that strong sense of belonging? I didn't. I wouldn't say that I felt safe in the first uh, couple of years in Australia, though, because, you know, we got people telling us, you know, there's too many Asian people and, you know, all these and others. And you went to school and you brought food and that your food smelled and all of these things right. uh, back in those days. Uh, but... Regardless of those, I kind of learned to accept that in some way, shape or form and remind myself that I need to do something to get better at so that I can overcome that or beat them. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or beat them I like that <laughs> I'm not sure what I've beaten them Whoever that they are <laughs> But I certainly overcome it in myself To know that I do have some strength And with my education And so on and so forth That I can actually get uh, be be my Create my own path With the supports and so on But I felt that I could Look at that more as a strength uh, not all the time, but you know, after a while, you you learn to take those as a strength more so than as a uh, a, a, a barrier or a, a demoralizing factor. Absolutely. Now I that I think takes time. I yeah. can't say that I had that right in me at the very moment, but you know, you 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 get that over time, and you build your allies, and you've got some friends, and you've got. And I was lucky to have found some really important and, and good people. Um, in my life that have helped me build that strength and that resilience that the, and that character in me. It's so interesting how a shift of perspective can help you actually deal with um, the same situation completely differently. And I relate to that. Um, you know, I injured my back in 2018. I had a spinal injury at the age of 21 years old. And um, for, a, for a while, I was quite, I was home ridden for a few months, but for a while I was really... Um, I guess discouraged and I just felt really um, yeah, upset as a young woman that I was having to deal with this and I felt as though I had a few things to blame for it. Over time I realised that I had to learn to accept the injury and start understanding how I could you know, use the new knowledge or the treatment I was getting to my benefit to ensure my strength moving forward. So I really relate to yeah. that. Yeah. And you have some friends and some allies and some people along the way to kind of help kind of nudge you along as well. Yeah. And for me, that's my culture, my faith, my family, and a whole bunch of people you kind of randomly meet over time <laughs> and you kind of keep those connections. Hannah, I'm, I'm imagining that this conversation resonates for you too. And can you tell us a little bit about... Um, what safety means uh, for you personally, but also for the young people that you work with and how you think that sense of safety actually resonates when you think about social cohesion? Yeah, definitely. Um, firstly, thank you. Thank you so much, Anthea <laughs> and Lilia, for having me here today. I think, yeah, as we've touched on, it's a very important conversation to have you know, social cohesion and what that looks like and what role do we all play in strengthening social cohesion. Um, this safety, if you if you, can, you can look at safety in a number of ways, right? Um, but if how we relate to this particular topic is, how do we all, you know, kind of come together and keep each other safe? You know, um, Australia, Victoria is a very diverse place. You know, you walk around these streets. That doesn't matter what suburb or neighborhood you're in. You see diversity. It's in your face. You know, you, you're speaking to it. You're either you're eating some food or you're you're at a local gathering, etc. So it's. How do we all, um, maybe I, I'd say, would the question be, do we feel safe as, as a community or do communities feel safe? And, yeah. and for some people, yeah. that, that diversity mm -hmm. can feel quite threatening. Um, and for others, it's something to rejoice in. Right. Of course, um, of course. So it, it's, it's really interesting yeah. about how individuals might respond to that. It's, I, growing up, you know, my, my parents came here in 1990, oh, 1990. Mm -hmm. um, we, we started off in Brunswick. You know, uh, we, there was uh, 17 people in a four-bedroom house. Wow. Uh, so, so it was a very wow. packed-up house. Um, I essentially went, went out to public housing in North Melbourne, right? It's the, the reason why I mention that is because, obviously, in North Melbourne, public housing, there's diversities there. You know, you feel safe because you're with your people. Mm -hmm. You're with your community. You're with your neighbours and your friends and your aunties and uncles. Um, so at that moment, in that environment, everyone would, would feel safe. Mm -hmm. But it's... 
coming out of that, so when you have to go to work, when you have to go to school, when you have to participate in sports and extracurricular activities, often people are obviously for, for myself, that's where I'm a, I'm a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, and that's where that safety comes into play. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at home, when I'm in this particular environment, I feel like I could be whatever I want. I can say whatever I want, do whatever I want. I feel safe. I feel like I belong here. But at a very young age, um, doing extra things, you know, going outside of my community, that's where I'm a bit cautious because, hey, is this me? Do I fit here? Do I feel safe here? Um, but I think that just comes back to individuals, communities, you know, people like ourselves, um, playing that role in ensuring that all people from all walks of life, culture, faith, backgrounds and religions, you know, feel safe in this community. You know, we're all brothers and sisters and all Ab- of that. Absol- yeah. Absolutely. I, I am curious about the role of sport because you've been quite active in basketball mm-hmm. and, and various other areas. Yep. Does, does being a part of a team mm-hmm. give you an added level of security when, when you're actually then navigating other groups of people other areas other parts of the community yeah i think it's it can't be understated the the role sports plays in you know in building social cohesion um working with uh, uh the north melbourne football club the huddle yeah um this amazing work out there and seeing how they use the power of sport as a tool to engage communities bring communities together i found that really powerful really interesting where is we're all from different walks of life but it's the one thing that brings us all together is sports Kicking a ball, playing basketball, soccer, surfing, doesn't matter what it is. It, it starts conversations. Um, and I think as a society, as one thing, as Australians too, sport is our second language over here. Yeah. You know, whether it's <laughs> In Australia, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, whichever footy team you follow or et cetera. Um, and I think it, it adds to that, that teamwork, that, you know, that mateship adds to that. Mm-hmm. And I think sports does play an important role. If I can quickly share an interesting story about sports, my mum, you know, God bless her mum, if you listen to me, hello, what's happening? <laughs> um, but it's, she's a very conservative person, very quiet, very shy. Um, it's 2005. Um, it's the World Cup qualifiers. So the Australian Socceroos are about to qualify to, to the World Cup. And there was a special moment there when one of the players, I think, goes by the name of John Aloisi, scores the winning penalty to secure Australia's position into the World Cup, 2006 World Cup. Um, at that, when that moment happened, I, mum went absolutely ballistic, <laughs> started running around in the streets, <laughs> the, all, all the neighbours came out, but all our neighbours are, like, majority of our neighbours were Italian and Macedonian and right. Greek, and it's just a party, <laughs> and at that moment, she just felt like, hey, like, this is me. She you was know? just part She's of something. Yeah. Like, and she still talks about it till today. Wow. <laughs> you know? So it's moments like that. And we see firsthand how sports can, you know, bring positive energy but connect people together. Absolutely. You know? So it's yeah. a, uh, but also playing devil's advocate though. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, have to, I have to do this. It's, I think there's still more to do. So yeah. on, on the weekend, I went to the Collingwood and Carlton game. Big game. 85,000 mm-hmm. people packed in the MCG. For those four quarters, we're all together. We're all yelling and screaming and singing and shouting. And it's we're one big community. Yeah. But when the final siren goes, what happens? We each go back to our circles, our groups, our bubbles. How do we preserve, uh, preserve that energy? Mm-hmm. How do we preserve that community 
feeling. Well, I was actually going to touch on something similar to that because mm. I found it interesting when you were describing to Anthea what you find safe. You sort of were describing almost establishing safety first within your, you know, your inner or intimate sort of community mm. and then being concerned about establishing that sort of safety with the wider Australian community. And it seems as if that that's the natural flow for people. They they have like this safety net within their immediate community, whether that be their cultural community or just their immediate environment in terms of their area. And then and then they're concerned about whether or not they can feel comfortable in the wider community. And I think that yeah, it's that question of that transition from um, you know, often having to code switch or change your behaviour or change your approach to the wider world that might make people feel a little bit mm-hmm. unsafe. Um, but I just found that very interesting. Um, but that's yeah. where to me representation comes in. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Right. So we see others that are like us or similar with us or to, to us, uh, you feel that sense of connectedness, that sense of uh, comfort, that sense of, um, um, yeah, it, it's okay to be me. And and that's, I think, is a part and parcel to me of representation and diverse and, and, and visibility mm. and, and representation in all aspects of our society, which should be, uh, if we look at the diversity of, Victoria, of uh, Melbourne, Metro Melbourne and Victoria as a whole. Viv, Absolutely. Y- yeah. You've... Um, uh, You've been involved in the um, dual identity leadership program for the Vietnamese community, which is an incredibly powerful thing because, as as we've sort of mentioned, things to do with identity, especially when you've you've got different heritages and different grew up in different places, and all this these different elements feed in. How how why did you develop that particular dual identity leadership program, and what benefits do you think it's had? broadly to the to the Vietnamese individuals that have gone through it in regard to building social cohesion overall, giving them that sense of safety, that um, safety of their own person. Yeah. For me, when I was thinking about that, I, I thought a lot about what's the anchor of an individual and that's got to be about his or her or their identity. Because if we know who we are and we are comfortable with what we've got, warts and all, then we become less inward focusing, but then more externally focusing and then looking around and say, okay, well, that's what we've got. What can we do? How can we make it better? Or how can we improve it? And for a lot of Vietnamese people, and I suppose like many other uh, migrant generations that come before us as well, is that sense of denial about my identity because we so want to fit in and that's why my name is Viv and not V, my Vietnamese name. It's something, whatever it is that we wanted to, to kind of be part of it because we don't really, don't, I didn't want to bring my Vietnamese string rolls and fried rice because it's too smelly for everyone else, right? So you, you brought along sandwiches, which I didn't really like, but I had to kind of eat because I didn't want to be different to the other people. Um, so knowing you, so knowing about me and what my heritage has and being able to have the knowledge to say, I don't like that bit about my tradition. I do like that part about my heritage. I'll keep that. I won't take that. Uh, but have the full knowledge to be able to do that. And that then creates a greater understanding of the par- with the parents as well. And the moment that you've got a reduced level of genera- intergenerational yes. challenges or conflicts, mm. then you have that much greater understanding. And if you've got more harmony in your family, mm. regardless of what we see of the issues, you know, we can look at mental health. I would place a lot more significance on mental health than, say, my parents would. Mm-hmm. What's that like? What? I've been in jail for 20 years. What? What's this 
health business, can't you look after yourself? This is nothing compared to back in my days, right? <laughs> so they say that, but they don't mean anything malicious other than that's their experience. Right. And if we take that approach, then we will have a significant level of conflict. And that's part and parcel of why we thought if we could create that identity, that un- that understanding within the family, then that would have to, by definition, flow on to the outside f- the outside world. Wow. And it, it, it raises that, for me, it just helped me understand um, something that I've been thinking about recently, which is, um, you know, in the young, um, in the youth today, and say the African community, Hannah, we've recognised how um, those who were actually born here t- are tending to have more problems in, t- in terms of with their parents and with, with the system. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to understand how that could be the case when, you know, they were born here. But in fact, it's, it's probably, and it could be a lack of, you know, knowing of who they are or lack of identity issues, essentially, that are causing those issues because they d- they're not connecting with their family and there's that gener- generational disconnect. Yeah. Is that... Does spot, spot on. Yeah. I, mean, I think spot on. I think identity plays, a, especially in the youth space, you know, um, a massive, massive um, contributor to why... Um, young people unfortunately face some of these social issues, whether, as Viv touched on, mental health or uh, alcohol and other drugs, um, homelessness, you know, youth justice, etc. It's, it there's there's a big piece of work that needs to be done in communities around like, what is our identity, you know? Because we're we're currently in in an awkward position where, you know, where it's that push and pull, you yes. know, where we're here and we're there. Exactly. Where, where's that common ground? You know, as a as a young man living, born and raised in Melbourne, you know, I've been here my whole entire life. I faced those challenges. You know, it's um, I love my African culture, I love my Somali culture, but hey, I still love my footy, and <laughs> I'm still Aussie as Aussie can be. Yeah. You know, but, but you're also pulled in not only to do with your ethnicity, you're yeah. also pulled in directions based on, uh, as as Viv was pointing out, the generational pieces. That's right, definitely. You know, and and especially once you become a parent, mm-hmm. then then you've got even more dynamics to play out in exactly. regard to those sort of different mm-hmm. generations. So, how how do we find because I, th- I like what you're saying, Viv, about this idea that, it, that if the individual can have a degree of comfort, a, a degree of um, reassurance about who they are and, mm-hmm. and the fact that they're fine um, just as they are, then potentially that helps everybody because they then feel more comfortable about interacting with other parts of society in different ways. Yep. And starting with the family, because for you, Hannah, for example, you are not quite you at home because there are some expectations from your parents that are slightly different to say the broader societal expectations mm-hmm. and so you never quite fit in mm-hmm. you're not too you're not quite somali at home but you're not quite aussie outside because you you have reservations of what other people think of you or people other people might have reservations about what they think of you mm-hmm. because they don't know you so the, all of these things that I'm, i don't quite fit in i don't quite belong it can be a real challenge for for young people and i for me, I, I grew I grew up through that, and it's it's hard. It is very difficult. You your home when I'm at home for a long time. I felt too Vietnamese. I, I certain, there are certain Vietnamese words I don't understand. There are certain t- traditions expected of a girl that I'm just too uncomfortable complying. Mm-hmm. And when you're out there, you're a bit shy for your st- stock town standard <laughs> Aussie person. You know, you should you should interject. You shouldn't just wait for other people to allow you permission to speak in a conversation. You just got to jump in. Right? <laughs> and I kept waiting. I never got a chance to speak. Mm-hmm. So you you have to try and balance those aspects and having some level of comfort and confidence about who I am and what I've got, warts and all, um, certainly helped me. 
I don't know about the others. It certainly helps. (laughs) I think, yeah, I think I relate to that, you know, as an African-Australian and as someone who's got to a point where I embrace the duality in my identity and who's as someone who's taken, you know, the time to understand um, my culture as well and who I am, I, I feel as though I don't feel torn personally in like as you know I don't feel torn in two directions am I African am I Australian I'm very much an Ethiopian but also an Australian and I think it's because I was able to go through that process of understanding all of those facets of who I am taking some maybe rejecting others but still understanding it's it's helped me get to this point so that that makes a lot of sense I feel as though you've helped me sort of um, articulate something I've understood intuitively yeah, so, so then the next step you. is make others understand. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> it's interesting because social cohesion in itself is a process, right? Yeah. The, the community and society is going through continual change. And so m- managing and strengthening that social cohesion is an co- ongoing conscious effort. Yes. But it, clearly it comes from the individuals because each individual is going through the same type of experiences of change happening all the time in their lives and how that they how they manage that mm-hmm. is incredibly important as to how they can manage change in society mm. overall so um, I think there are some interesting thoughts about what what do you think are some of the building blocks for the broader community to think through uh, from a social cohesion perspective what what are some of the things that should be priorities for the society Viv? For me, it's a couple of things is making sure that we recognize the barriers and the opportunities. And then making sure that we actually fuel or, or cre- break down those barriers and do so consciously and over time and 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 sis- in a systematic sort of way and not as an initiative sort of thing where you can say you know like you do something and then it really got the attention for the day and then it mm. dies down and then things go back to their business as usual. Mm. Um, I think for me that's really important because then that creates a more equitable and equal platform for everybody to contribute if we can't if it's too difficult for example to make everyone go through a self uh, (laughs) you know development sort of journey then at least make the environment easier for them to do so for those that are able to and to be able to do that because i think the systemic barriers are really uh clear and strong Mm. And we don't necessarily want to concede nor acknowledge that. And even when we do, we take a more programmatic approach as opposed to a systematic approach to it all. And by that, I mean throwing some money over here, Mm. hoping that things will kind of quiet down. But actually, the foundations down here are still the same. It is such a huge challenge, though. (coughs) And, And I'm sure that you've actually got some thoughts about this because... Government and government entities at any level just seem huge. And the idea that a single individual can feel comfortable in being able to make an impact on that. How do I make the health system more inclusive for people like me or like you? How, how do I actually have an impact on that? It, it's, it's a really big leap for people to have to think through. So have you got any thoughts about what an individual might be able to do when they're confronting something um, sort of system-wide like that? It is hard for an individual, I have to admit. Uh, uh, I mean, I can say that now because I'm turning 51, I'm 50 years of age. When I was 20, I wouldn't have that level of confidence or courage to be able to speak up or speak out. And I know I've had plenty of experiences I didn't 
and I consciously chose not to because of fear and a whole bunch of other um, internal factor matters, right? But I think for the community and especially for the multicultural community, we do need to come together. And that to me is really important because we don't want the decision makers say, well, that's Ethiopian group, then, you know, a bit there, and that's a Vietnamese, that's a Chinese, that's an Indian, that's a Greek. Mm. We need to come together. What is it that brings us, that, that are common, that come, allows us to come together? And it's got to be that level of participation that everybody has an equal opportunity to succeed here in Australia. It doesn't matter whether you've been here 50 years ago or just five years ago. And hopefully our most recent election reinforces that view that in actual fact every Mm. vote, every person matters and you can make Mm. change. And what about then in the family sort of environment? I'd be interested to know, Hannah, maybe your thoughts about um, the different ways that either the parents or the the children can sort of bridge that gap of understanding. Yeah, I think um, it, it comes back to conversations, you know, having those conversations and being open to listen to the other side. You know, um, mm-hmm. our parents, God, God bless them. You know, it's they they've gone through very various challenges. You know, being coming to a whole new country and setting up shop, and you know, having kids and putting them through the education system and trying trying your hard every single day. You know, it's just to create better lives for them. Right? They've sacrificed a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot a lot of the parents or a lot a lot of the multicultural families still haven't reconnected with their brothers and sisters and siblings and. That, that whole sense of, you know, being left, you know, mm-hmm. I'm in a new country, but my whole family's over there, right? So being like, sympath- not sympathetic, but empathetic to their current situation, but also slowly taking them through that journey of understanding, okay, this is how things are now. Mm-hmm. You know, working with them slowly, it might not work straight away, um, but giving them the time they need to kind of understand their current environment. But also, I think it's, we're, we're in a very interesting time at the moment where if you... If what some some of the stuff that Viv was saying is, we need to create a space, an environment where people feel like they're able to participate. That's a big part of social cohesion, to me anyway. And clearly, it's something that you spend some time talking Definitely. about: is how to make sure that young people feel they have a voice. Yeah. No, not not just yeah, young people, but smaller my community groups. You know, it's how can we get the voices on the ground. Mm-hmm. Those grassroots voices, the the people who are experiencing these challenges, these issues, how do we amplify their voices so their issues are are not only seen, they're heard, valued and respected? And how can they inform decisions, um, key decisions that are impacting their communities? As you mentioned, Anthea, this government's so big. We're we're dealing with this monster of a thing and it's where do you start? Where do you kind of look at this problem? But I think it's it comes back to the individuals within those, those sectors, but it also comes back to the individuals and community. It's having the having the freedom and having the courage to kind of, you know, kind of like speak up and say, "Hey, this is wrong." But Hannah, yeah. both you and Viv had had a very real experience of this during yeah. the pandemic, yes, and and during the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how how both of you were able to actually influence yeah. the system? in order to ensure that people were actually being treated mm-hmm. in the way that they needed at that time. Oh, of course. I think me and Viv had a... Yeah, we had a very... Uh, it got to a point, I, I saw Viv out of the 14 days, probably like 12 out of the 14 days, <laughs> spent a lot of time with Viv. And you know, big shout out to Vivian. I think a lot of people still to this day don't know the work she did yeah. during, those, um, during the hard lockdown in 2020. But um, the people on the ground do. Oh, my God. It's... 
yeah, I think she did. She did some amazing work, pulling thirteen-hour days, standing in the rain, advocating, and standing side by side as we mm-hmm. are right now, supporting me, and you know, opening some doors where you know I couldn't, you know, essentially, you know, um, open. But I think if we come back to that that period there during the hard lockdown, we're talking about three thousand five hundred residents, three thousand five hundred community members who've been locked in their homes, um, unwillingly, you know, um, and placed on a hard lockdown. The interesting thing about that was. What do we know about these communities? That's the gap right there. Mm-hmm. So when it came time for the recovery, when it came mm-hmm. time for the support, the questions are being asked, who are in these buildings? Mm-hmm. Who are these communities? Where do they come from? What are their dietary requirements? What are the supports that, that they need? And it was, we, we started working from the back. When I, when, when, I, when I say we, I mean not me, but I say government, right? Because all of a sudden, everyone's looking at each other like, where do we do, where do we start? How do we support these people? But luckily, the community was able to mobilize at a very, very fast, mm. you know, um, they were able to mobilize and come together within a day or two and set up, you know, at the mosque and set the food up and the communications within the buildings and, you know, talk to various organizations and community groups and how can we organize ourselves to support our people? Because at that time, honestly speaking, we, we didn't feel like government understood the severity of the situation. Being from, you know, I used to live in North Melbourne Towers, 33 Alpha Street. I've got aunties there, cousins, you know, parents, this, that. I know those buildings. I know all those buildings. And I'm like, this is not going to go down well. <laughs> but my, my, I'm just one person. You know, ah, b- but you yeah. were one person in a network. There you yes. go. And, and, and Lydia, I don't know whether you, you, you've noticed this. I'm sure you have. Mm. But, but what each of you brought was a bridge you you were a bridge to to Hunted was a bridge to Viv Viv was a bridge to the to the government mm-hmm. government government exactly. was <laughs> you Definitely. know then filtered back. What I'm interested in Viv is that that there was. Do you think there was an underestimation of the ability of community to actually do what needed to be done? Well, I, I, there are two aspects for me. I think the the first thing is that our knowledge or the government's knowledge of the communities was quite at a very low threshold. That's the first thing. The second thing is there was no trust between the government and the community, and the way in which the government responded to the or, or, or you know implemented the lockdown brought the trust level way down to another level. So when you've got no trust and no understanding, it's totally understandable why the community was angry. But I think throughout the not not withstanding the lockdown in Flemington and Northman, I think the ho- the government totally underestimated the ability of the community to to mobilize themselves to support their own communities when there were then there were when there were no policies. Mm-hmm. The federal policies of for international students and non residents didn't come in for quite some time. The Victorian government's uh, support, the financial support of eleven hundred dollars, didn't come in until after that. So, but whilst that was all happening, the lockdown happened. People lost jobs. There was no food. They, they didn't have accommodations to 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 to, to stay. Hand sanitizer. Cost of buying all of this stuff weren't there. Who did the work? The communities. Mm. They didn't ask government for funding. They just did it. And they did it until the the relevant policies came in. And even when the policies came in, the eligibility of those policies was so problematic as well that we, the likes of us, had to say, hang on, you couldn't do that. You couldn't ask them to show, to demonstrate, you know, they've exhausted their annual leave and sick leave and on on their pay slip, 
in order to qualify for that $1,100 or $1,500. Mm-hmm. Some of them didn't even, they get paid on cash. So like, mm-hmm. what, what are they supposed to show? So all of these things, they got amended, you know, um, modified along the way to make accessibility a lot uh, easier. But that came from like relentless advocacy for many sources. Yeah. And the, the fortunate thing was that at least they listened. The yeah. relevant people in the departments listened. And for the VMC, the way that we did it was that for us, it wasn't about taking sides. It was just about the issues mm-hmm. and the empathy of the people who are experiencing those issues to the government and the empathy that we would have for the for the public servants who have had no experience in this, having themselves thrown into the deep end and trying to kind of flounder and work out what the heck's going on. So for us, it's that understanding that I felt that we were able to help bring different parties together more than it would have been otherwise. It's interesting, Lydia, isn't it, that that um, one of the things that we learnt, albeit an incredibly traumatic way of learning it, um, was in actual fact that everybody wanted the same thing. Definitely. Everybody wanted the, the world to improve. They wanted to be able to go back to work. They wanted exactly. to be able to socialise. They wanted their children back in schools. All of they those things. They were united things. over that mm. So if, if nothing else from a social cohesion perspective, what we actually learned was, gee whiz, everybody has the same mm. expectations, the same aspirations. Exactly. And, and such an important thing that we need to continue to remind people about so that we don't go back into thinking, oh, everybody's different in some way. No, yeah. everybody's got the same sort of aspirations. Hannes? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so during, during that time of the hard lockdown, I think it was uh, the second day, Actually, the, the very first day, it was a Sunday, um, at the mosque, uh, bright, bright and early. I put out a, I recorded a video somewhere on Instagram now. It racked up over about 75 or 80,000 hits online on Instagram. Um, just a call to action. You know, mm. Understanding very early on, understanding what was taking place and wh- what was happening. Just a call to action to community. And I made it very clear, like, hey, we all need to come together at the moment. Doesn't matter what area you're from, what um, the suburb, background, religion. This is a time where we all really need to band together as one and support these vulnerable people in these communities. But what happened after that was we have about hundreds of people from all walks of life in a mosque, in a mosque, yeah, the mm-hmm. most holy place, you know, um, for for us Muslims, right? All working together, side yeah. by side, supporting each other, and I think that's amazing, that's beautiful, mm-hmm. but it's. It, it shouldn't be that only of times of crisis um, absolutely. Yes, that we are together. This is what I was thinking about. I you was know? like, it's interesting how, yeah, in times yeah. of crises, people come together and they unite over yeah. that, mm-hmm. which is great. But it's, yeah, it's also, okay, what happens when we're all relaxed and, Definitely. you know, life is going good? <laughs> <laughs> Where do we find those shared values and those shared, exactly. you know, visions for, for our lives in this mm-hmm. country together? Um, absolutely. Yeah. As we come to the end of this podcast, I'd be really interested in your views and you too, Lydia, yeah. on on the future. What what is it that we've learned as a result of the last few years? But also, what have you learned through your lives that actually would give us some guidance about where we should go into the future for thinking about creating this more cohesive society? Um, Viv, if there was one thing I would wish for, I think for me the uh, the power and the influence should be a bit more shared and not concentrated to a, to a handful few. Mm. Um, uh, for me, I think when we look at these uh, the decisions that are made and the thought process that, that are considered where to, to lead to those decisions, 
are too focused on on a handful of people or a very few people how about we empower people to be able to have a say and actually you taking their their opinion seriously and giving their opinions due consideration I think that's really important. And in a practical sense, it comes down to engagement, engagement frameworks, you know, having engagement as part of your uh, process in, in an autumn uh, um, uh, BAU sort of fashion, not only engage when you need to or you do so for as part of some box ticking exercise and, and so on. And then looping it back, thank goodness, you know, so that you can do what we've s- provided you with. We know whether you've, you have or haven't or what you've done with our ideas. To me, that's really important. I to the decision makers, it feels like it's such a cumbersome process, too time-consuming, too costly, but it isn't really. Because the moment we empower the community to know that here are ways that you can channel the, your feedback to, and then you actually get looped back, then we can, we can move on. If our idea wasn't a good idea because everyone else didn't think it was a good idea, so that all could move on. But I don't think we have that. It just comes in ebbs and flows. Right now, with the the way, you know, we are no longer in a pandemic, all of the engagements have just kind of disappeared because mm. of budgetary constraints. Yeah, I get that. But there must be some other ways some of these things can be maintained. It, it is interesting how powerfully the Victorian Multicultural Commission has used Zoom during this time to actually bring communities together because you made it incredibly easy for, for hundreds and hundreds of representatives of different communities to come together to learn, albeit something that everybody knew they wanted to know at the time, but it is how to maintain that momentum of people coming together and talking and then, and as you say, about issues, about those sorts of things that are that matter to everybody. So and getting um, that feedback, you know, like oh. and exactly what the Scanlon Foundation <laughs> is really, you know, does is well exactly what the Scanlon Foundation has as part of their mission, which is to have that feedback through research. And Andrew Marcus spoke about it and the importance of it in the first episode that we did. And you've just echoed it again today that we need to have that feedback so that we're able to, you know, revise and implement new things. Um, yeah. What mm. about yourself, Hannah, to Anthea's mm. earlier question? Of course, being curious, I'd say. Um, if, we're, if we're looking at how we can really strengthen social cohesion, curiosity is a big thing. Being curious of your surroundings, of your neighbours, of your colleagues, you know, um, people you walk by on the street, people you speak with on a daily basis. Conversations are very powerful. You know, um, individuals' uh, abilities to storytell, you know, can not only educate but empower um, individuals. I think uh, social cohesion in Victoria, you know, we, we've made some amazing progress over the last um, over the last decade. Mm-hmm. There's still some work to be done. <laughs> um, it's continuous. Definitely. Never stops. Definitely. But I think it's having vehicles like the VMC and so many other peak bodies, if you look at FECA and ECCV and so many other organisations where they're doing some amazing work, right? Um, but let's come back down to the fundamentals. Yeah, Let's look at it from an individual's perspective, a family's perspective. Um, often we look s- too broad, too holistic, and y- things can get lost you know, in, in the messaging. Have have those conversations, create environments and spaces where f- people feel like they belong. And what, adv- what advice would you give to young people who are a little apprehensive about talking? About mm. And then they may well be curious, yeah. but they don't actually know how to engage in a conversation with somebody that mm. seems considerably different to, yeah. to where they are or that they think wouldn't appreciate where they're coming from. Mm. 
It's wow, what a question. <laughs> I've I've got some advice while you're thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I've got some <laughs> advice. My advice would be, and this comes from personal experience, um, and it it speaks mainly to that issue of. Um, generational disconnect between ourselves and our parents give them a chance mm. <laughs> because um, it, it actually took situations where I didn't want to give my parents a chance but I, I had to because I was caught out in things for them <laughs> f- for us to be able to confront certain issues and it was at that point that I was able to understand like hang on Dad was so cool about mm. that. He was actually he was he was so willing to understand it. Actually, in fact, he actually knew, uh, like he was aware of this, or he, you know what I mean, or he went through this himself. And I think we, um, in an effort to not have those confronting or like you know negative sort of situations with our parents, we stay away or we hide things and we we try and do all of that. But it just actually mm. doesn't help. Um, we need to try to get to that point where we actually are willing to talk to mm. them and. It doesn't mean you you should be um, less of yourself or, you know, kind of be insincere about who you are. I think you should still be assertive about that truth, but then gracefully and gently try and work with your parents. (laughs) Just just to add to that, I think something that comes to mind when I think about social cohesion, just quickly, is integration, I see it, or social cohesion is a two-way process. Mm -hmm. Definitely a two-way process. I think there's responsibility shared on both sides. Right, um, new migrant communities, people of color, multicultural communities. We have a role to play, so we have to do our part and take those necessary steps to understand our new environment. But also, the wider Australian public meet us in the middle. Yeah, if we're really serious about creating strong, thriving, cohesive communities, if we're gonna, if, we, if we're honestly going to be that glue and that bond, we need to come to a position where we're close. You know, and that involves us taking some steps, and then and the the broader society taking some steps. And just for just for young people, I think um, Lydia, you mentioned it perfectly, right? It's be don't be afraid to jump out of your comfort zone. I think sometimes we're we're too you know um, consumed in our own personal environments because we get safety from this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm in a, I'm in Collins Street in a very tall building, level 31. <laughs> you know, with an amazing view. You know, but it's amazing. You know, I'm having good conversations. Try new things speak to new people, engage with different crowds, and you'd be surprised what you find. I, th- I think that's wonderful advice for everybody. I, th- I think both the, the comments from both of you have been really, really powerful, and the fact that you've shared your own personal stories is even more powerful because I think that's what, that's what people can relate to is, oh, somebody else has had a similar situation mm. to me. So um, I'd like to thank both of you very much for having been a part of this podcast. Yeah, it's this been just tremendous and, uh, and has added yet more colour and and, and uh, perspectives to our thinking about social cohesion. So, um, you know, just incredibly valuable. And thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. This thank was you. amazing. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by Faisal Farah with sound design and mixing by John Gigolo. Original music is by Official Steno. You can find all our publications on our website at scanlaninstitute.org.au. Please subscribe to be the first to receive our next fortnightly edition.